0: The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, a reach into the ACB archives to remember talking book narrator, Terry Hayes Sales, who died in November, 2010. But first, the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act has been passed by Congress and will be signed by the president. From the ACB National Office in Arlington, Virginia, Eric Bridges brings the Happy New Year news of this amazing accomplishment to ACB Reports for January 2011.
1: It's a remarkable achievement in that the blindness community, the auto industry, and Congress all wholeheartedly support this measure and what it intends to do. As many well know, H.R. 734 in the House and S841 were introduced in uh, early 2009 and garnered a lot of bipartisan support in both bodies. Early part of 2010, the automaker Toyota had a lot of issues with its vehicles. And so Congress took a look at how the government had historically dealt with some of these problems with Toyota and said, look, we need to produce a piece of legislation that will deal better with these types of safety challenges. While that was happening, it seemed rather clear that our Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act legislation, while it was gaining a lot of co-sponsors and gaining a lot of visibility on Capitol Hill, it wasn't going to be able to move by itself. So as they brought this Motor Vehicle Safety Act, which was the bill to deal with the Toyota issues to the Energy and Commerce Committee for markup, we were successful in hammering out some consensus language with the auto industry and both parties in Congress that would essentially update the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act language and have it attached to the Motor Vehicle Safety Act. That happened unanimously in the Senate and the House, and so the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act was included. Now, what took place after that is a really frustrating and challenging set of circumstances. All of a sudden, this larger legislative vehicle became very controversial for a whole lot of reasons that had nothing to do with our provision. So earlier this fall, we had started to advocate to have our provision taken out. Both bodies of Congress wanted to try and get the Motor Vehicle Safety Act through as is, and they weren't necessarily willing to just piece out our little provision and allow it to move on its own. Along comes November and after the elections, we sat back down with the Senate Commerce Committee to talk about this and said, you know, If the Motor Vehicle Safety Act isn't going to move, it would be a shame to have it die with our provision in it because our provision is non-controversial. It's unanimously accepted by industry, the blindness community, and Congress. Would you consider at the appropriate time releasing that provision and allowing Senator Kerry, who's the original co-sponsor of S-841, to move it through the process to get it passed through the Senate? And... uh, The week of December 6th, the Senate Commerce Committee staff allowed it to move independently of the Motor Vehicle Safety Act. Senator Kerry put it through the proper procedural stuff, and it passed under unanimous consent on uh, December 9th. It's in large part to the tremendous advocacy of ACB members. This has been able to come through and uh, ultimately pass both bodies and uh, is just days away from being signed into law by the president.
0: That's the important thing is that it did get the result that we were wanting all along. What is
1: that result? The result is that in three years, car manufacturers that are producing cars to be sold here in the U.S., will be required to sell hybrid and electric vehicles with a system attached to them that will emit a uh, minimum sound emission when the cars are traveling at low speeds. Because as we all know, when hybrids and electrics are traveling at low speeds, the sound that comes from them in terms of wind shear, crossover stuff, is so minimal and at times next to nothing that when you're traveling in close proximity, you have no idea that you are in fact traveling in close proximity to those vehicles. So in three years, there will be that requirement, and the alert sound that will come from those vehicles will be in line with what you would normally hear from a regular internal combustion engine. Furthermore, the owner of the vehicle will not have the ability to turn it off. The Department of Transportation has about 18 months to begin the regulatory process. They've already, over the last year and a half, started uh, studying this issue. They went through phase one of the study. Phase one was, is there a problem? And they're on phase two right now, which is, how do we solve the problem? And a lot of that is to do with our original bill, H.R. 734, and the language in there that called for Studies. So really, with this new language, we're moving on from studying the problem to establishing standards, and through the regulatory process, implementing the new sound emission standard.
0: And it's a regulatory process we've talked about so many times that is as important as and as time-consuming as getting to the point where we are.
1: Correct. The nice thing about this process, though, Mike, is that it's not going to be quite as involved as the Communications and Video Accessibility Act is, the auto industry actually buys into this. They believe in it. They helped to endorse it. Whereas with the telecom bill, really the best we could hope for in some cases was that entire parts of the consumer electronics industry just remained silent and waiting to fire really on the FCC through the regulatory process. So that's, I think, fairly significant differences. That and we've been dealing with the auto industry in good faith for probably over two years and the Department of Transportation, so everybody knows what the challenges are.
0: We mentioned 21st Century Telecommunications Act. Some committees which were required by this act have now been established at the FCC. Can you talk about that?
1: There have been two committees established, uh, one dealing with uh, emergency 911 stuff that really has to do more with deaf and hard of hearing issues uh, pertaining to real-time text and the deaf and hard of hearing community's ability to more timely communicate with 911 operators during emergencies and things of that nature. The second committee is the Video Programming and Emergency Accessibility Advisory Committee. And that really deals with the bulk of the Title II issues pertaining to blindness. Title II of the law deals with uh, video programming accessibility. This committee is going to be tasked with looking at video description standards for it, how the uh, consumer of video described content is going to be able to access it, which means dealing with on-screen menus, dealing with electronic program guides, dealing with the emergency alert crawls that go across the bottom of the screen, how to deal with those issues through technical standards and uh, advising the FCC on the best way forward to be able to implement through standards or regulatory rulemaking, how best to do that stuff. That committee will begin to meet here very shortly within the new year. And I'm proud to say that there are four ACB members that will be participating on that committee. Melanie Brunson, ACB's Executive Director, Pratik Patel, who's the President of ACB of New York and also the Chair of ACB's Information Access Committee, Marlena Lieberg, who's the uh, Secretary of the ACB Board, and Luis Herrera, who's a member from uh, California. They all bring some technical expertise to the table that I think, from a consumer standpoint, will serve the blindness community quite well.
0: We're talking with Eric Bridges, Director of Advocacy and Government Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. During our November program, you mentioned an upcoming meeting with representatives from Microsoft. What happened at that meeting?
1: In late October, myself and Pratik Patel, along with uh, other representatives of the blindness community in the U.S. and abroad, had a meeting at Microsoft headquarters to talk about Windows Phone 7 and the accessibility, or lack thereof, of this new product that was going to be brought to market in early November. This particular device is not one that the blind or visually impaired community can use at this point, unfortunately. In essence, the president of Microsoft's Mobile Communications Division, put it to us this way, he said, you know, we're, we're fighting to stay relevant in the wireless device space. Over the last 12 plus months, Microsoft has gone from having 10% market share of the wireless device market down to roughly 4%. They're really, really struggling. They made some strategic mistakes. He was first to say that uh, the accessibility or lack thereof of the phone wasn't done maliciously, it was done out of incompetence. We had, a, I think, a productive discussion throughout the course of a working day to talk about what the blindness community wants to see in the next generation of the Windows phone. Microsoft is interested in making it accessible. Unfortunately, the next generation of the phone isn't probably going to come out until 2012 or so. They couldn't necessarily commit to that time frame either, but what they wanted to do was to look at what we want see if they could do it. And they believe that they can do it. But unfortunately, over the last several years, Microsoft has done a lot of this sort of thing where they will say one thing and then do another. So am I optimistic that the next generation of Windows phone will be accessible to us? I really don't know. I'm highly skeptical. They did say all the right things. They have committed to moving forward with a process whereby they will build in accessibility and utilize the blindness community as testers. But we'll need to see how this process moves forward in order to really get a sense for how committed they really are.
0: What can we do in the meantime to not let them forget?
1: Well, I think through the rulemakings that are going to be coming up, You know, we're going to be commenting, and we already have commented at the FCC about Microsoft's failure in this area. One of the real frustrations is that Microsoft has been a part of the negotiation over the telecom bill. So they knew that all this was coming, and yet they left it out. They have their own economic reasons for doing that. But we need to continue to keep applying pressure through comments to the FCC about the ridiculous nature of them putting out a completely inaccessible and incompatible phone. So it's not even like we could go out and get mobile speak and load it on there for an extra $300. It's not even capable of doing that. So the more that we can keep writing about this, either to the FCC or on technology blogs, the better off we will be. I certainly have pretty regular conversations with the folks out at Microsoft, and I know that the National Federation of the Blind does as well. So it's a matter of continuing to apply pressure.
0: This conversation with Eric Bridges was recorded on December 17, 2010. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. She recorded her first talking book for the American Printing House for the Blind in 1938. Over 900 titles later, she narrated her last book in 2006. Terry Hayes Sales died in November 2010 at the age of 94. In 1998, she was a featured speaker at the 37th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in Orlando, Florida, where she was introduced by the late Patricia Beatty.
2: Her career began in high school as a staff vocalist on the radio. She has won awards as an actress. She's done radio TV commercials, radio talk shows. She was inducted into the Talking Book Hall of Fame. Our next speaker is Terry Hayes-Sales from Louisville, Kentucky. (laughs) I wanted to say hi (laughs) y'all that's how we that's how we say it in Louisville and I am just delighted to be included in this event and it gives me an opportunity to tell you about the work that's been a part of my life for so many years I usually avoid dates or details which can cause people to start adding up my age and mentally exclaim, is that woman still alive? (laughs) Well, the answer is affirmative. Though the physical plant has changed a good deal, the brain and the mouth still work, and so I'm grateful. But I must take this occasion to deny the ugly rumor that I was present when the APH organization was first begun 140 years ago. (laughs) I didn't begin working there until four or five years later. (laughs) My professional career started as a singer when I was 15 years old at radio station WBBM in Chicago, my hometown, and I had my own show on Saturday mornings, and very soon I was signed as a staff singer, performing with a large studio orchestra that all important big radio stations maintained full time. WBBM was a CBS station from where we did many coast to coast shows. Now that was considered a very big deal in those days. After graduating from high school, I went to Stanford University. I intended to get a good education and a drama degree. And upon my arrival at Stanford, I joined a student dance band orchestra organized and led by Ernie Heckscher who later became a big star on the West Coast, playing for many years at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. I was the girl singer in the student orchestra. After one year, my plans changed. I got an MRS degree (laughs) and moved to Louisville, where my husband and many of his family had been born. It was in Louisville that I became a staff singer at WAVE and later at WHAS, performing with their studio orchestra. Now I was at the same time doing live theater, plays, radio shows, and then I heard that they were auditioning narrators for a project at APH called The Talking Book. I auditioned, was hired, and the rest is history. When my husband volunteered and received his commission in the Navy, I moved back to Chicago while he served almost four years on active sea duty in the North Atlantic. I worked in radio, soap operas, etc. And I also had a talk show on WGN discussing women's interests. Oprah was not around then. <laughs> when my husband came home from the Navy, we moved back to Louisville with our two little boys. And then I took up my real lifetime work at APH as well as continuing TV appearances. These recorded books have allowed me to portray many different characters. I have been royalty, pioneer women, teachers, philosophers, politicians, prostitutes. I was Maria von Trapp in The Sound of Music long before Julie Andrews. I was Harriet the Spy, I was the oldest living Confederate widow, tells all, and boy, she had plenty to say. (laughs) I have read many of the modern bestseller novels, which contain vivid and raunchy sex scenes and language, which today is quite commonplace. Um, If you want to know those titles, you'll have to see me later. I have been British, French, Spanish, German, Chinese, and once I had to read a whole paragraph in Portuguese. That's a killer language. (laughs) In the past few years, I have recorded eight or nine of the Anne Perry, Charlotte, and Thomas Pitt mystery novels set in the Victorian era. These are well-researched as to the customs and language of the times. The dialogue rings true, and there's also good characterization and humor. And just a few months ago, I recorded True Grit, the novel from which the movie was made starring John Wayne. He won an Oscar for his role of Brewster Cogburn, but the novel belongs to Maddie Ross, who starts out at age 14 and finishes as an old lady, still feisty, smart, and independent. Oh, I loved her. For many years, we have all heard conversations, results of studies, and so on, about people who are trying to find themselves. I consider myself very fortunate. I found myself a long time ago. In addition to my personal private life, which has brought me many joys, and my share of tragedies, I have had another life which, in my mind, defines me. I am a narrator of the talking book and I hope to continue as long as you want me. Thank you. Thank you. 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 (laughs) Now, I think we're running a little bit late, and I wanted to give you a sample of a couple of my, well, sort of favorite books, if that's all right. This one is Knit One, Pearl Two by Thomasina Weber. The scene is a crowded courtroom filled with spectators who have come to the preliminary hearing of a case in which a young, beautiful woman is accused of murdering her elderly husband who has been ill for some time. The crowd has come to hear what they expect will be many lurid details. Flo Connolly, a frequent visitor to these trials, has come with her bag of knitting, ready to stay through the day. Her new acquaintance of the morning, Mrs. Frisbee, has just made a remark to Flo that the judge will decide if there's enough of the case to try her for murder. Flo laughed aloud. People turned in their seats to see who had interrupted the proceedings. <laughs> did, did, did you recognize that I planted that? That was... <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> the, judge, the judge frowned at Flo. If the spectators cannot control themselves, he said, I will be forced to clear the court. <laughs> Phew, said Flo under her breath, her knitting needles flying faster than ever. Young smart Alec. just because he's sitting up there on a black robe, he thinks he's God almighty. This judge is highly respected, said Mrs. Frisbee. He hasn't made a right decision yet, as far as I'm concerned, said Flo. I don't see how one man could make so many wrong moves. Just because you don't agree with his decisions, Doesn't mean they're wrong, said Mrs. Frisbee gently. What's that you said, asked another woman, leaning across Flo. I said they ought to have women judges if they want justice done, said Flo. William Clark's physician took the stand and testified that he had been in South America when he learned of the death of his patient and the arrest of Delcy Clark. He had caught the first plane back. The doctor further testified that William Clark knowing he had less than a year to live, an increasingly pain-ridden year, had insisted this information be kept from his wife. The doctor said he was convinced Clark had hoarded his pain-killing drug to use in one fatal overdose. The doctor then produced his notes taken during consultations with William Clark, confirming the deceased's statement that he would take his own life rather than be a burden to anyone else. The courtroom began to buzz. The prosecutor was out of his chair. The judge was pounding his gavel. Very neatly done, said Flo acidly. Anything to make it look good when they free her. Order, order, said the judge in a calm voice, which was somehow heard above the clamor. A hush fell immediately, letting Flo's words ring out. The usual whitewash. She looked up to meet the cold blue eyes of the judge. He gazed at her for a long moment, then struck his gavel one more time. Will counsel please approach the bench, he said. There followed a sotto voce conference, and finally the judge said, in view of the testimony and supporting evidence presented by Dr. Fleischman, a witness for the defense, the case against Delcy Clark is dismissed. He rose and left the courtroom. Flo stuffed her knitting into the tote bag and pushed her way out the door. Ignoring Mrs. Frisbee. She walked determinedly down the corridor to the judge's office, opened the door, and stepped inside. The judge looked up as she entered. What are you doing in here? I am here as a taxpayer and a citizen of this community to tell you what I think of you. Didn't you cause enough disturbance in the courtroom? It is a taxpayer's right to attend public hearings, isn't it? Of course. And there is such a thing as freedom of speech, isn't there? Yes. So that means I can attend all the hearings I want and say anything I please. Isn't that a fact? No, it is not a fact. There is also such a thing as contempt of court with which you flirt every time you come into my courtroom. Flo was standing in front of him now, holding her knitting bag between them. He was not much taller than she. Do you understand what I am saying? I hear you, she replied, reaching into the bag and taking out her knitting, her eyes never leaving his face. Of course you hear me, he said. But do you understand me? Certainly. I may not have had a college education like you, but I'm not stupid. She unfurled the knitting from its core of needles and raised a needle to his shoulder, the work dangling free. You are not listening to me, he said. Let me tell you this. If I see you in my courtroom one more time, I am going to have you forcibly evicted, taxpayer or no taxpayer. Well, she said, jamming the knitting back in her bag. Just see if I finish this sweater for you. She marched marched toward the door, put her hand on the knob, and turned back to look at the judge. Such a way to talk to your own mother. (laughs) Now, if you're not too bored, this is just a very short postscript, I call it. I don't know anything about its origin or its author. It's certainly not profound but I think it gives a helpful message. I try to remember it and use it in my daily life, and when I do, it works. It's called attitude. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think, or say, or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace that day. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our own attitudes. Thank you.
0: Legendary talking book narrator Terry Hayes-Sales was recorded on July 8, 1998 at the ACB National Convention in Orlando, Florida. A special thank you goes to Braille Forum editor Sharon Lovering, who provided this audio recording, which was edited to fit the time constraints of this program. The full presentation from Terry Hayes-Sales, which includes an additional reading, has been placed on the ACB Reports page of the American Council of the Blind website www.acb.org You've been listening to ACB Reports heard on radio information services nationwide on side 4 of the Braille Forum Cassette Edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org